today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tell your friends, subscribe, hope you enjoy the show. Coming up on today's, we'll talk about the President's State of the Union address. Pretty positive. But what happens once he gets on Twitter? In that State of the Union address, President Trump said there will be another meeting with Kim Jong-un. What have we learned from the last? What will the next bring us? And the group Dying with Dignity is launching a campaign in support of Audrey Parker. You might remember she was the lady diagnosed with terminal cancer who had to end her life early in order to have consent. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Last night, State of the Union uh, address. Most, you know, probably not interested in this unless you're, uh, you know, a poly head like me and you, uh, you're interested in this. And and I, I don't think. Uh, well, I'm not. I'm not sure what we were expecting, uh, but certainly uh, something not as uh, positive if we can say that, as uh, what we experienced. Uh, Here's one of the more, uh, it sort of started slow and friendly and a lot of love in the room, and then as it moved towards the end, uh, it got a little bit more rambunctious. Here's what the president had to say about socialism. We are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence, and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free, and we will stay free. All right, let's bring in Ryan Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem at all. Anytime. Your thoughts on the President's speech last night. Is it what you expected? Uh, it's more or less what I expected. I mean, there's some historical precedent here, recent historical pre- uh, precedent. If you compare uh, Trump to the position of President Clinton in 1995, uh, when the Democrats lost control of Congress, and then uh, President Obama in 2011, uh, President Clinton back in 95 was very conciliatory, uh, admitting mistakes, uh, sort of posited a redirection of his own administration. Uh, President Obama, uh, much, uh, more combative, um, less willing to acknowledge that uh, either he had made mistakes that resulted in his, uh, the, his party's electoral defeat. Trump, I would say, somewhere in between. I mean, what I see in that speech is something that I guess I would say I expected. Uh, he's trying to find a way for the Republican Party to survive politically under changing economic circumstances. And uh, one way to think about this is that despite his criticisms of socialism, President Trump uh, and the Republican Party will have to find some ways uh, to adopt policies that will address questions of inequality. And you see some of that in the speech in terms of his discussion of health care policy. But, yes, it's a, it's a difficult there. He's in a difficult political situation. And the way he structured the State of the Union address, I see it as, you know, trying to balance these twin goals of maintaining your core supporters, but trying to reach out to some of the people who have been alienated from your own party and are perhaps potentially going to be alienated by the emerging Democratic Party as well. Uh, many said he, you know, before this, not sure which which Donald Trump you were going to get, the more presidential one, whether he would ad-lib, be, you know, feel uh, comfortable enough to, to freelance through, through part of this. Your thoughts on his performance? Obviously, the speech hit the nail on the head and finding that balance and that unity is as you talked about. But what about the fact that, you know, when we look, 
when we watched last night, we see one president. When he's off in Twitter land, there's another one. Right. I think, I think uh, President Trump is finding some ways to evolve into the presidential role. And it'll be interesting to see whether he is he's going to make a decision to abandon uh, Twitter commentary Trump in favor of a more presidential version, which we which seemed to be on stage last night. I mean, one thing you always have to remember if we're just talking about questions of, of style and to some degree even substance, obviously responses to these speeches are filtered through partisan predispositions. If you read, say, conservative commentators this morning, you will see, you see them say this is the best speech Trump has ever given. It shows you that he's turned a corner. If you switch to the left-wing uh, left side of the commentariat, you have people saying he continues to show dangerous signs of authoritarianism. And frankly, after I read all the commentaries, I'm somewhat confused myself in the sense that you can see you can see elements of both. But I think that uh, Trump would, even though obviously he's not going to address this directly, but there is something about possibly something about his presidential style that, however effective it might have been, say way back, even in in the uh, Republican primaries, it's it's not maintaining a sufficient level of support um, going into the 2020 electoral cycle. So some kind of change in tone is necessary, and I think we see we see we do see some of that uh, in the State of the Union last night. It was interesting. You said him; uh, he may be evolving into the role. Boy, a lot of people have been hoping for that for the last two <laughs> years, and pretty much given up on that. Do you think that's what we're seeing here, or is it just the uh, you know uh, the political geographics where he's presented with, and you know he, he's got to, he can't be as divisive. He's got to try to make friends with somebody if he's going to get anything done. Yeah, I think the what you said last was is exactly correct. I mean, he cannot, you can't maintain the same strategy uh, when conditions have changed. And so, at some point, uh, you know, the desire for power is a pretty important motivating force. And so, and because of that, uh, given the fact that he's not been able to create sort of a massive populist, you know, reshaping of the political, uh, the political universe. Uh, he has to continue looking for um, new possibilities, uh, which in most cases involve departing uh, from what was traditional republicanism, republicanism as little as four or five years ago. I mean, if you look at some of the themes that he's emphasizing in terms of being, uh, and people are aware of this, but themes in, in terms of themes of criticizing trade deals, the issue of health care costs, it wasn't too long ago that these were, were democratic themes as well. So I think that, yes, the desire to be reelected is a strong one. And I think that uh, maybe he was the last person in the United States to realize this. But there was something about his rhetorical style that was evident uh, as, you know, as obviously, you know, if you think back to his American carnage speech way back at the beginning of his presidency, there is something about that rhetorical style that was giving diminishing returns. And so, you know, it's necessary not only to change tone, but to find find possibilities for political compromise. Uh, perhaps the, one of the best examples of this was the emphasis on uh, criminal justice reform. I can't think of any other Republican president who has uh, spent so much time talking about that specific issue. Trump didn't go as far to emphasize, say, the, the disparate racial impact of American justice policies, but it was, it was implied. Uh, so I think that's a good example of the kinds of policies that um, might end up working for him. One problem is that it could eventually cause divisions within his own party. 
For a president that seems to want to put people back on their heels and create divisiveness, it seemed quite positive. I'm, uh, for me, I noticed both sides clapping more than in past State of the Union addresses. Is that accurate? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, you did not have the very dramatic confrontations that have, that have occurred in some of President Obama's State of the Union addresses. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the member of Congress who shouted, "You lied at President Obama when you suggested that um, his, you know, the new healthcare policies would not be available to illegal immigrants." So, uh, yes, I, I do think that there was uh, Trump was trying to be positive in, in a lot of ways. But I don't think there was undue or unusual deference to him. I, mean, I think that it was, uh, you know, people who have been talking about the photo of Nancy Pelosi clapping in a sort of ironic manner. I yeah, mean, clapping is, at him. He's, <laughs> yes, he's not a he's not a president who's going to inspire uh, undue reverence, and that's the way things should be. Um, I think that uh, the Democratic Party might find itself in a more difficult position uh, if Trump is able to find a policy agenda that is able to occupy the political center. Um, think in particular of what appeared to be an ad lib line, but which uh, might not be Trump's statement that in addition to border security, he wants to have a generous and open and more open immigration policy that could put the Democratic Party in in a fairly in a fairly difficult position. So they you know, it's not just Trump has to be concerned with strategy. The Democrats themselves have to be concerned mm. with how are we going to respond to these overtures? Is it going to be enough simply to oppose and to resist? What if the Mueller report comes in and there's not much of anything? It's not collusion. It's not impeachable offenses. It's relatively minor shenanigans by the rogues gallery of people that Trump had around his campaign way back when. Uh, the Democrats themselves could find themselves in a difficult position if they are only about opposition. I don't think Trump is so unpopular that there's no possible way for him to uh, sort of rebuild an electoral coalition. So the Democrats find, might find themselves facing some difficult choices as well. Especially if he starts to pull back quickly or hits the brakes quickly, they don't want to go flying right by him with this, do they, with this rhetoric? I mean, they want to keep it balanced, especially after you see what you saw last night. And, and I'll continue with my next question. What? Right. H- how do the Democrats react to what he did last night, to his performance last night? Well, what we always have to remember is that you know political parties in the United States um, are not very well organized. It's impossible for them to be to act uh, in a unified way. Yeah. So different em- diff- different Democrats have different kinds of incentives. Uh, it's easy enough for someone like uh, Ocasio Cortez, uh, coming from a relatively safe Democratic seat, totally safe Democratic seat uh, in New York. Uh, to say that we want to abolish ICE, that we want to move towards a Green New Deal that is going to radically transform the country in 10 years and so on and so forth. That's not going to work quite as well for Democrats uh, in uh, more vulnerable seats, the Democrats who have pushed uh, their party into majority territory. So I think you could see some divisions here. I think that particularly on the question of immigration, uh, Trump's, you know, Trump's position is actually moderate, and it's something that, at least in terms of what he's announced last night, um, leaving aside some of the decisions about how to enforce the law, the idea that you control the border, but you have a generous immigration policy and you move towards something like amnesty for people who have been there for a very long time, 
that gets the support of not just Americans, but a lot of Democrats as well. And if that's an offer that's on the table, uh, I'm not so sure that Democrats will be able to get by just focusing on the symbolism of the wall, right? Is the wall simply a symbol of nationalism and racism if it's combined with uh, moving towards amnesty, if it's combined towards a more Canadian-style immigration policy. Which he has uh, said. I mean, Trump has come out and said, and I can't remember where where he said it, but he, he said, I'm just looking for something more similar to the Canadian system. And I'm thinking, man, if he used that language more often, he wouldn't be in this mess. Trump, some of Trump's advisors were using that, uh, using that language at the very beginning of his campaign. Yeah. Uh, if anyone wants to read the book, the book of the Canadian law professor at, at, I think it's George Mason University, Frank Buckley, he said that Trump should make, make the United States Canadian again, mm. and that the Canadian immigration model it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you want a controlled immigration policy, a, a policy that doesn't punish people, a policy that doesn't involve enforcement Gestapos, but at the same time, you can't just have a porous border. And I think that that is, uh, I think that that's reasonable. Yeah. I think a lot of America, and more importantly than me, I think a lot of Americans will, will think that that's reasonable. As Do you well. think the whole discussion over the wall has become locked in terminology? Uh, again, it's, they both want border security. Both sides want border security. It's, it's, it's the terminology of the wall and this, this image of a giant concrete wall between between two states is this is this becoming merely a uh, a debate over what it's called i mean aren't both sides right. really talking about the same thing here uh, trump made a huge mistake by focusing on the wall as a symbol and making it kind of this unnegotiable element of immigration policy but then he's all of a sudden pulls back on it and says oh no we're right. not necessarily that it could be this and it's like well what right. is it <laughs> yeah i mean that's where it gets to become terminological i mean i could imagine a deal in which uh, a deal is achieved, and then they spend time arguing afterwards as to whether it's really a wall or not. Um, or yes, what to call I, it, I, <laughs> the official yes, exactly. title. Um, but I, I think that the, the problem here is that Trump should not have made this the centerpiece of, of immigration enforcement. Um, it, he should have made it part of negotiation, perhaps. Um, I, you can think of other issues that might have had been both more effective in terms of dealing with the problems of legal immigration um, that might have attracted more um, might have attracted more support. Um, for instance, uh, employer e-verify. This is something that could have had much more traction for him, I think, in the general public, because there are many Democrats who, if you if you, you put this proposition before them, you know, should it be possible for employers to routinely evade the law, ignore the law, and not be punished for it? There are a lot of Democrats who will say no. Whatever else they might think about immigration policy. You know, even the people mm -hmm. who quite legitimately do not want to see families separated from their children at the border. So it would have been it would have been much more useful, I think, for Trump and the Republican Party for this entire debate to be about an actually effective and probably popular policy such as E-Verify, as opposed to the specifics of a wall, which, you know, who knows what it's going to accomplish. What about uh, Trump mentioning the investigations? If you want unity, you can't have investigation. Uh, well, of course. Congress is supposed to investigate the executive branch, so that I would not give him an A for that if it was a civics exam. That, to me, uh, that, seemed to be the weakest part of this speech for me. Right. It does. It does seem. It does seem rather petty. Um, I'm. I'm not sure who advised him to place that in the speech, but I think at this point everyone is is getting at least a little bit exhausted with it, 
And I think it is reasonable for the entire country to just want to see, to want to see the Mueller report. It is time. I think that I'm even a little bit worried that if the investigation drags out longer and longer, um, people will start claiming that it is having an undue influence upon the electoral politics of 2020. So I just don't think that the president can be under uh, this kind of shadow for this long. I mean, either there is a case for impeachment or there isn't, and the public needs to know. Um, I have no idea what the truth ultimately will be. I think there's a lot of people, even those who try to pay even more attention to this than I do, who have difficulty separating the wheat from the chaff. But one thing I know is that Robert Mueller knows more than all of us, and it is it is time to bring things to a close. I would agree with that. Uh, it seemed quite positive. You wouldn't have thought that just a little while ago the government had been shut down for over a month. Uh, <laughs> are you surprised there wasn't more on that? Uh, I don't think emphasizing the shutdown and, and, and emphasizing that kind of brinksmanship uh, would have been uh, very useful for Trump. So I think it completely made sense for him to sort of try to articulate some of the broader agenda. On the one hand, uh, focusing on issues that are absolutely crucial for his base in terms of addressing, say, the abortion issue and late-term abortion, but at the same time, also emphasizing things that um, might be able to attract uh, some centrists as well. So I think he, I think it was a good decision in terms, and basically trying to put the shutdown behind him, right? Uh, not making that the uh, the central the central issue. Are you surprised he didn't jump off script much? He seemed to have listened to the advice of his advisors on this. Right. Well, I think he I think he's starting to become aware that the State of the Union is not the same thing as speaking before a rally, yeah. and the sort of more improvisational style, which might work beside but in front of certain kinds of audiences, uh, is not necessarily going to work when you're talking with people who aren't necessarily your core supporters or are inclined to disagree with you. But how do people so, react, especially from a credibility standpoint, if they see two different sides of a president that way? I mean, it seems, you know, what happens from the thumbs is different from the speechwriter. Right. That's, uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess I would say in terms of people paying attention to Twitter Trump, I mean, how many people is that actually? Because it's always important to keep in mind that, you know, you and I, I get paid to study politics. You sort of get paid to study politics. You're interested in it. Um, Most people are not paying that much attention in the absence of actual national crises. So I, I think that the, the divergence between the different styles of Trump is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily uh, so discombobulating for people. No, though it is interesting. I mean, can you imagine how confused the country would have been, or the country did find it confusing back when the private Nixon came out, right? When, yeah. uh, when the, uh, the White House tapes came out in the 1970s, mm. and a man who was capable of acting professional and presidential in the public spheres was cursing like a sailor you know this is shocking to people right now we i mean so trump we see both off the cuff trump and we see more carefully tailored trump i think some of what people are realizing is that we like people to be tailored in the public sphere right we don't necessarily want to see your id just immediately translated into mass communication Hmm, interesting ryan hurl has been with his assistant professor department of political science university of toronto ryan fascinating discussion thanks for the time much appreciated no problem at all anytime You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
We've been talking about Donald Trump's uh, State of the Union speech last night. In that speech, he mentioned a second meeting with Kim Jong-un coming up later this month in Vietnam. To talk more about all of this, Ferry Dekerkov is with us, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ferry, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. With pleasure. Your thoughts on the State of the Union address last night and the fact that North Korea was mentioned in this? If you want me to refer to the whole of the State of the Union... Well, you know, you don't have to... It's going to take us about two hours. So let's say that divide and conquer. Let's see if he can conquer because divide, he's good at it. Now... Did you think... Wait a second, let me ask you this. Did you think... I thought that speech was more positive than divisive last night. Now, of course, we can see... I'm being being a bit mean. I know, but we we can see both sides of this, but I just... Were you surprised that it was so positive? Let's be honest, there there was some very... You know, it's... The good, it was a good speech, somewhat poorly delivered occasionally, and there was some good stuff. But when at the end of the day you talk about compromise and you <laughs> scream and I'll have the, the, yeah. the wall built and, you know, all of that doesn't smack for great unity. And even the body language was he only looked at whatever base he has in Congress, which is really basically the Republican and only once did he turn on the right to talk about when he saluted a number of women elected, which was a good point. And some of the, the, the stuff about, you know, the, the, the veteran and all that, all that is always great. Mm. And so you expect 70% of the American to actually think that the speech was good. It was good if only we could trust Trump to deliver yeah. on the notion of compromise. So yeah. I think that's, that's where... Nobody believes him anymore, even though the speech was fundamentally not a bad speech. Uh, do, do Americans, uh, do, is there a credibility issue now with the president in the sense that, you know, when he's up and acting presidential like this, and as you said, it was a well-written speech, he seemed to do, uh, you know, as good a job as Donald Trump could do in that sort of scenario. But then, of course, uh, you can contradict that uh, or contrast that with, you know, someone who's who's over Twitter uh, for the majority of the day, using his thumbs and saying something completely different. How do Americans process? Well, I mean, do, I mean, obviously this is more presidential, but do they accept yeah. two different presidents like that? Well, they're, they're always baffled by the difference between the tweets and the speech. But just look at the latest survey of who, you know, would you vote for Trump as the next president? At the time, they're looking at Joe Biden, where 50 percent of the people are saying they'd vote for Biden. Then we're way, way down on, on Trump, even though his base is still there. So it's, it's a, I, I think there is a credibility gap. But there's, we also live in two different worlds. It's, it's fascinating. I have decided that I watch CNN. But I also look at Fox News just to see if we're on different, in different worlds or different planets. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time, I'm baffled because it's, it's called the conventional middle-of-the-road media, which is denounced by the Fox followers. So I don't even know what to follow. And sometimes I actually look at Canadian News, too. <laughs> No, it is. I I see exactly what you're speaking of. All right. So uh, during the speech, he talked about how there will be another meeting with Kim Jong-un coming up February 27th and 28th in uh, Vietnam. Uh, He also said, quote, um, uh, made the bold claim that had he not been elected, quote, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. Uh, Do you agree with that? Okay. Two or three points before we go into depth of it. Okay. First of all, is it is such an important issue a distraction that he brings from time to time 
to rekindle the, the belief of people in him. Okay, let's 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 look first at North Korea. And in fact, I'm going to take the statement of Kim Jong-un with much greater credibility than what Trump says. What Kim Jong-un has said to his people after showing that he can deliver missiles way past Guam, nearly all the way to the United States, which get the United States to worry about counter, you know, basically the, the counter missile defense, uh, yeah, missile defense against that kind, of, that kind of threat. Now, I don't think that the North Koreans are at the point of miniaturization and all of that, but they've made some fantastic progress. And Kim Jong-un has basically said that now that I have the capability to deter any attack on me, I'm going to focus on the economy. And simultaneously, you've had the Olympic game where the, the President Moon, who deserved the Nobel Prize, nobody else does, managed to really build a new relationship. How much is it sustainable? How much his own people in South Korea is, are, are prepared to go as far as he goes? I don't know. But the, the convergence of that and Trump coming in into launching the dialogue with Kim Jong-un looked very great. But then you have to do a fact check and just look at the more recent UN report. You know, the, the UN re- produced two reports a year on the evolution of the effectiveness of sanction and what does it mean for Kim Jong-un and North, and North Korea. Well, right now, the latest report that just appeared very recently says that Kim Jong-un continues to have to move around his missile so that they're not either not detected or not easily reachable. So all that big loop uh, from Trump about denuclearization is phony on a fact basis analysis, but it is also a very distorted view of what Kim Jong-un is pursuing. Kim is happy. He got international recognition. He's considered a nuclear power. He's a big boy. He goes to Moscow. He goes to China twice. China still controls a lot of what Kim Jong-un is doing. But basically, Kim has won credibility on the international stage through the first summit. But his definition of denuclearization is what? It means that South Korea basically abandoned its strategic alliance with the U.S., that the U.S. pulls out most of its 30,000 troops and and capabilities in the region. And then we, my dear Kim and my President Kim, we will be neutralized and I will control South Korea because I still have the weapons because I'm not going to withdraw them at the pace at which is, is conceived. So we live in a world where... Kim is playing a very smart game, a long game, and Trump plays one summit to another with very little to show for. Nothing new with Trump. Is it dangerous? And that's the real question. And, uh, and the, 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 that's where we look at the world, world more globally. And China has as much at stake, if not more, in controlling Kim. So in a way, strategically, Oddly enough, the only ally that the U.S. has in this juncture is China. But China will have us pay or have the West pay enough respect and consideration before it really controls Kim nuclear. nuclear. I don't think that China is actually ready to 
force Kim Jong-un to abandon his nuclear weapon because China doesn't want reunification on Western terms. And I'm not even sure that China wants reunification at all. I think it sees the present situation as more stable uh, and, and, and less dangerous while it is trying to force Taiwan to rejoin mainland China. So you've got to look at the broad strategic picture. And Trump is completely out to lunch when it comes to the strategic picture, because what he's doing, he's really working on his reelection, on on bumping his support if he can by by telling his base, you see, every time I see Kim Jong-un, I'm making progress. Pompeo marks in, mar- marches in. But the fundamental is there very little change in the way Kim is handling his nuclear weapon because denuclearization doesn't mean the same thing for him as it means for the U.S. Uh, we all know that Donald Trump will try to distract. He'll create a, an artificial crisis, ramp it up with rhetoric, yeah. and then pretend to save everybody from it. And you could very much say this about that, especially uh, about this situation with North Korea, especially when the fire and fury rhetoric started and yeah. the size of each other's button and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then, of course, he had the summit and saved us all from the brink of nuclear war. That being said, uh, many have said over years, you know, the whole nuclear uh, disarmament and, and, you know, it's tit for tat, one for another, that's going to take forever. But what has happened is when all this started or or before the rhetoric started, uh, Kim Jong-un was lobbing missiles all over the place and that has stopped. Is that not successful. I think I think you're you're absolutely right. It is important that he no longer lobs his missile left, right, and center. But his lobbying again was strategic. He wanted to make sure that a he could prove he could do it, and and get recognition. And now he's not lobbing more nuclear weapons around the well, not missiles as it is around, not to please Donald Trump, but to ensure that now people respect him. And he got that. He, he got that respect in addition to meeting Donald Trump in Singapore and next time in Vietnam. And so in a way, he doesn't need to lob missiles around anymore. So, yes, it's great. We're very happy and it's much better. And by the way, it's better to judge jaw than war war. And so we ha- I have no problem with talking to the North Koreans, but talking with some specific accruing change in the behavior of North Korea, which is not happening despite what Pompeo may say, what Trump may say, because the intelligence service of the U.S. were very clear. The new, the, 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 there hasn't been new denuclearization, whatever Trump has had to say. So, yes, it's better. But as I said, I attribute it, A, to Kim succeeding in reaching the objective of recognition and deterrence, and second, the quality of President Moon using the Olympics to thaw what was a dangerous situation and the folly of preceding uh, administration, whether it was Clinton, whether it was Obama, not achieving any real results with North Korea. But Trump has not achieved a result. He's benefited from a situation which he hastened his own way by by actually having that summit. So that's the positive side of the summit, but it hasn't changed the nuclear situation of North Korea. Uh, the summit, then, in your opinion, benefited Kim Jong Un more than Donald Trump, even though the missiles have stopped. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, what will they accomplish Listen, in the second? 
if, if you had a meeting with Donald Trump or Obama before or Clinton, how would you feel? You'd feel empowered, whatever the reason of the summit, because it is the leader of the most powerful state in the world. And, and it matters, and it matters even more for Kim Jong-un than for you and me. What about the second meeting, the second summit? Okay. What will that accomplish? What will, the, uh, will there be an agenda? Will we know? What, what do you think the goal will be here? Well, the goal may be, may be to actually have a real commitment on the stuff that Trump has claimed, which has not arrived, which is a certain amount of dismantlement of certain facilities uh, but the problem with that is that because Kim is smart, Kim will say, OK, you lift sanctions and I will dismantle such and such and such uh, place. And Trump will talk about full denuclearization when, in fact, it would only be a beginning. And I'm not even sure that Kim will go that far, but I think he can still have a few of his location burn out, explode, because he's moving around his, his, his weapons. So I'm not very sure that there'll be much substantive progress, but it will be a continuation of talks and, 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 and again, continues propping up Kim. But strategically, again, you've noticed uh, that uh, now there's a real dialogue between Russia and, uh, and Kim, and the sanctions are busted increasingly because the Chinese say, okay, you're talking to Kim, well, we're going to ease up on the, on the oil and, and, and coal. And now more and more ships are, 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 are being, there's been transfer of oil at high sea. And again, the Russian and others are closing their eyes. And it's only the American who occasionally are ma- managed to actually seize a, a cargo and, and have it turn away from, from North Korea. So there, there's, you know, until such time as there's reality in both the commitment their achievement and the language of politics, particularly by Trump, it, it's still going to be Kim winning, uh, winning the game. Um, so was it wrong for Donald Trump to give Kim Jong-un this attention, this first meeting? Uh, as Donald Trump suggests, if it wasn't this way, uh, we could be at war with them. What would have happened if the two did not have if the, the two did not meet? Okay, I'm going to try and be generous. I'm going to say that the plus of the meeting is that Kim has been not rehabilitated, but habilitated, which is something that South Korea badly needed So because it would entertain a dialogue. So I think the real plus of that meeting, it confirmed the, the, wise, the, the wisdom of the South Korean president policy of appeasement and dialogue with North Korea. In terms of weaponry, it has reduced the tension. Uh, but don't forget that the fire and fury, uh, there, there, was, there was already a lull before the summit itself, but the, the, the summit could not have happened if, Trump had, if, if Kim had continued to send, to send missiles around the place. But mm-hmm. as I said, I, I think that it confirmed a situation where Kim had already felt he needed no more proof of his capabilities. But as I said, a summit is useful and it's good, but you cannot alter the interpretation of the fact based on the summit. 
And that's where the problem lies. And that's why I'm worried about the next one, because Trump is creating expectation in the American public. Thanks God the intelligent don't believe him and NATO will pretend to believe him. But I think the more you create expectation, the more you can have a very bad outcome further down the road when all of a sudden you actually discover more forcibly that Kim has not changed at all in terms of his nuclear nuclear intent and that you've been giving out maybe lifting sanctions and more to make actually to strengthen the regime without having obtained much on the denuclear fine. Ferry DeKerkov has been with us, Senior Fellow, Faculty of Social Sciences, uh, Social Sciences, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Ferry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. With pleasure. I hope I've confused everybody. <laughs> no, thank you so much. We'll chat again. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked about this case uh, before and actually talked about this when uh, Audrey Parker was making her case and was still alive and uh, talked to uh, Dying with Dignity about this. Now they are launching a campaign uh, looking for an amendment to Canada's assisting assisted dying law in the name of Audrey Parker. To talk more about all of this, Kimberly King is with us, a friend of Audrey Parker who died with medical assistance earlier than what she wanted. So... It, it seems very ironic that we offered her uh, this option and then we told her when she had to do it. So, yes, you're more than welcome since you're dying of a terminal illness. You're more than welcome to take your own life. We don't have a problem with that, but we're going to tell you when to do it. And the situation here, and we'll, go, we'll get clarification in a moment, is when you one of the conditions of an assisted death like this is right up at the last minute, you have to give consent. And I don't know about you, but all of us who've been touched by people and family members with terminal illness, it's those last days, weeks, months that are the most agonizing because in many scenarios, they're in a vegetative state. This is exactly what they were trying to avoid. How is someone going to make a conscious effort when they're over-medicated or, you know, just trying to be made comfortable. It's trying to survive. It's, it's bizarre. You give someone this right and then you tell them when they can do it. So as a result, Audrey had to do it while she still could because she was fearful that if she waited longer, she would be incapacitated and not being able to give that consent that is needed. And for her, it appeared like it was a few months, at least till Christmas, you know, manage through Christmas and then worry about it after that. One more. Uh, Let's bring in Kimberly King, friend of Audrey Parker, and she is with us now. Kimberly, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Happy to be here. Happy to always talk about Audrey. (laughs) Uh, Tell us about Audrey. What was she like? We understand she was quite a uh, vivacious person. She was a force. Yeah. She was a force. When Audrey walked into the room, you definitely knew it. And it it wasn't anything about calling attention to herself, but she just had a a pretty magnetic personality and uh, always saw the positive side of things. And and you know what? The, The first lesson that she taught all of us was really, even aside from her advocacy with made, was how to think differently about death. And her big mantra was, why does everybody think our first breath is so precious and our last breath isn't? So that was the first lesson that she kind of 
you know, taught Canadians through her Facebook posts and at a little bit of media that happened even before we were discussing Maid. She she had a pretty brilliant outlook on life and death, and, and that was something that was pretty powerful. She certainly seemed like the type of person that took control of her life. She was not a backseat yeah. driver. Yeah, and you mentioned the word control, and that's going to be an important factor that we're going to talk about as it relates to Maid, because a little bit of, of what you've just hinted at, you know, when somebody is suffering... Um, from terminal illness, you know, their end of life is near, um, you know, to have controlled, you know, you can't control necessarily the disease in your body or whatever's happening, um, but to be able to have that ability to to create that end-of-life experience that's important to you is just so invaluable. And I was with Audrey the day, would it be just about a year ago, this month, when we learned about MAID, you know, and certainly we all had heard it in the news, but until it's really relevant to you, we realized, wow, she could apply, so she did. She was assessed, she was approved, um, she went through the rigorous screening, which is two independent doctors, there's interviews, um, and what they're checking for is, are, is this really what you want? Yeah. There was no family present, there was no friends, it is all about patient and doctors, and it's a very rigorous screening process, as it should be. But she went through it. She was approved. And, you know, then later on, we sort of fast forward now. It's this past summer. And we learned that Audrey's um, cancer is potentially moving into the lining of her brain. And so now loss of capacity is is becoming far more a possibility. Right. And that's when we really started to realize this twist of the late-stage consent that, it's great that you've been assessed and approved. It's great that you dotted the I's, crossed the T's, it's all done. But if you lose capacity, it's gone. You have so, the ability to invoke MAID. So when when Audrey applied and was approved, she thought that was it. She never thought that, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I have to be uh, in this certain state in order for this to all happen. She thought yeah. that once she got the approval, she was good to go yeah. in her mind. Yeah, there was a conversation, you know, that because they're going to explain to you as a part of the process, this is, you know, the needles that are used, the clinician will say, you know, it, it was it was discussed as a part of that. Sure. But, you know, until again, until it's your reality, you know, that then then we realized, oh, my goodness. And so for Audrey, you know, that word control, it was so reassuring to her. It allowed her just to, to really kick up her heels in that last year because she said, you know, I, I, I know she never feared dying, but the getting to the dying is what she said she always feared. That's, you know, and she was quoted, dying is messy business. And if I can, if I can have a little more say in, in, in having a peaceful, beautiful death, that's how she described, you know, she wanted a beautiful death. Um, and we just felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath her. So, you know, we got involved with Dying with Dignity Canada, which is the organization that we are working closely with to petition the government for Audrey's amendment. And what that looks like is this, and it's pretty straightforward. We're asking for the late stage consent to be removed. It would be replaced with just a second step within the um, going through the assessment and the approval process, it would be something simple like a patient declaration. And and you, you wouldn't even have to sign it if you didn't want to. You can just say, I want made. If I'm conscious, great. It gets an, I would invoke it. But if you choose, like Audrey and like so many others, 
if you've already said, I want made, then even if you're incapacitated, you still want it. And what a relief for Hmm. the patient and family members to know this was their wish and it will be carried out. That is the flaw in the law to say, great, you know, you've done it, you're approved, but not unless. Uh, And the unless is when before this uh, uh, actually happens, you have to give one more final consent. That's right. And if you're incapacitated, whether it's through medication or the advancement of the illness, you obviously can't do that. Therefore, you don't get a medical assisted death. And I'll tell you, I've talked to doctors who have shown up, you know, um, at people's homes and they have literally slipped into unconsciousness and it's a no game. They can't do it. Wow. And I mean, it's just, yeah. So, and the thing is... And and obviously that's not something you can predict. You cannot think, well, you know, I'm feeling really bad today, so tomorrow's going to be worse. Let's do it today. You don't know that. That's why people are checking out. And the thing is, Audrey wasn't the first person to have to say, I'm going to have to set my date ahead. There's been others, but she was the one that was vocal about it. And so, you know, she has entrusted us as friends and family members to work with Dying with Dignity to 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 make um, make the claim, and so this is the video which we released today. She um, she was filmed three days before she died, and I have to always comment on this. Everybody says, "My God, she looks so good." Well, yeah. you know, inside she was in a lot of pain. Audrey mm. was a makeup artist, so she knew how to. <laughs> yeah, she could bring anybody around to the best of the looks, but. But inside, you know, and, 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 and I don't mind saying in her final moments before, you know, maid was administered, she just looked at us and said, nobody will ever know how much I suffered. We, we, hmm. we thought we knew, but it was a very poignant moment. Hmm. And, um, you know, so we, uh, we just feel so strongly that the government, we don't even think the government really <laughs> wants this. I know that, you know, we have a new justice minister um, we know that he's watching this and, you know, and, and Audrey's tack on anything as related to advocacy is not so much about being a hammer, but being the heart and saying, we want to help our lawmakers do the right thing. We don't believe that our government really wants this to be happening, that people have to, you know, um, check out of life. I mean, what is the most precious thing in the world today? doesn't matter what you're happening in your life. It's time. Yeah. Time is precious. And to think that our government is okay with people losing. And it maybe it's days, weeks, months, who knows? And I mean... But still, I, that's a choice that has to be left to the patient. It can't right. be left to That's right. The and, and, and if it were, then you would literally wake up every day and yeah. you would just take it day to day. Yeah. And you wouldn't be pressured. Um, when did she learn, at what stage did she learn that this was going to be an issue for her? At what time did she realize this was It this was, was around late, late summer, late summer, fall, right. September, yeah. So there wasn't even a lot of time. And I mean, you know, Audrey, she had conversations with everybody about it. There were some conversations with some politicians about it. There was lots of conversations in the media. Um, but there just wasn't you know, there wasn't enough time to, 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 to change the law. So that's why... What was response from government? I mean, did they realize, like, you know, in the end, you're giving yeah. someone the... You're granting someone the right to do this, but yet you're putting them in a position where they have to go early. None of well, that it, makes sense. It was a pat response, and it was the former 
you know, the former uh, justice minister. Right. Uh, but but the tact that was taken on it was to try and do a broad brush kind of a comment. Um, but what we're talking about is only the category of those that are assessed and approved. These people are not changing their mind. You know what I mean? Like the very lame excuse that, well, you know, we don't know what their wishes are going to be should they slide into a coma or should they become... Really? Well, you're already doing that by making them go early. That's right. I mean, my goodness, it's the same thing. That's right. It doesn't make any sense at all. So, So to be clear to your listeners, to anybody who is going to dine with dignity, who's maybe looking at the e-petition, who's thinking about this... You know, we're not talking about complex issues, people who have mental health issues or people who maybe have dementia. That is a very different process. These are people whose end of life is is foreseeable. They are very often in excruciating pain and they're in a state of decline. Nothing is going to bring this back. It's those folks that absolutely deserve to have the end of life that the government has said they can have. But it's just like you can't have it on your own terms. And, you know, from what I understand, I'm not a legislative expert by any stretch, but from what I understand, this amendment is doable. It's doable before a federal election. It's there. And, you know, our lawmakers, they they have to sit up and notice that this is wrong. And there's Audrey's happening all over the country. You know, she's not alone in this. And I'm sure there's people listening right now who are saying, my goodness, wouldn't we love to not have to make a difficult decision? Because time is everything, and it's very precious. Did she feel that she went too early? Yeah. Yeah. But you know the thing about Audrey is she thought about herself because she feared her own loss of capacity, but... This was a hard. This is a hard thing, and I'm going to hope that I get through this without getting a little bit uh, weepy about it. But it, you know, she did it for everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she, she, she created an example. That would yeah. be a bold statement, to, yeah. you know. And but others had done it too. I'm not saying others haven't mm-hmm. gone early, but you know what? To go public with it, it was very hard as close friends. To, like, I remember when she, and I think she announced the date in a media interview, like, we were less like, yeah. oh, my goodness, Audrey, you know? Yeah. And because she physically, outwardly looked good, you know, people kept saying, do you have to do this? Yeah. And, you know, but, but inside, though, you know, there was, uh, she was a master at her pain management. Hmm. And, um... And medical marijuana, a very important part of that, I might add. So there's there's That's lots of things, that, you know, in yeah. our world that we have access to now, which is really valuable and really important. Um, but uh, but Audrey, yeah, she uh, she wanted her death to to stand for something. I mean, she was on her way out. There's just no question. She was stage four when she was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. There was no yeah. chasing a cure, and she was all about quality of life and it wasn't the quantity it was the quality um and as long as she had quality you know then then yes she absolutely wanted to to stay can anyone uh predict can anybody imagine do you have an opinion on if she hadn't done it this way how long she would have lived or yeah i mean 
We talk about it, you know. I mean, I guess that's a self. I guess that's a selfish yeah. way of looking at it because it's about us. It's not about the person. That's it's, right. It, you and know. you know what? And that that's it's a very good point because you know when we all were like Audrey, you know. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But but you know what? In the same breath, we said absolutely, we yeah. support you. So could she have made it to Christmas? I think so. Yeah. I really think she could have, but. You know, it's not for us to say, and that's the beauty of made, or that's what it should look like. It should look like on your own terms, this ability to to have that flexibility and this extra restriction that's put in. You know, I mean, it's widely reported that Justice Minister Lametti originally, when and I believe it was, you know, when it was under B B Bill C fourteen. He did not vote for it because he said it it didn't go far enough. It was too restrictive and potentially could be unconstitutional. So there's a whole history in behind here. And our question is, why doesn't the government trust their own process? They set up the rigorous screenings. They set up the independent doctors. And again, we're talking about those people only in that category of assessed and approved. There's enough there. You know, there's enough to protect because nobody's vulnerable because if they were vulnerable, you know, in, in seconds, late stage consent, well, they shouldn't have been assessed yeah. in the beginning. Oh, it, you know exactly. I mean? so it makes total sense. They have to trust themselves. They set out the regulations. Yeah. Every, you know, Audrey followed it and others have followed it. So they so, need to trust what's in place. So what's next? Will this take some, will this take a lawsuit to bring this to, uh, well, to, to change? Well, you bring up a good question. Um, <laughs> you bring like, up a good question. Is, is it, or, mean, or will this, you know, what you're doing with Dying, uh, dying with Dignity and in this campaign, uh, yeah. will you get legislation change? Great. Yeah. You know, media stories are great. Letter writing is great. But nothing like a court to get it all settled. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, that, and that's not the preferred way of doing things yeah. but you know the other thing i mean the government is closely watching this we know that for a fact and we really hope through advocacy that we can have this law changed um but it may take a court case and there's no question that there could be a family somewhere in canada um who will t- will, will go that way who will say this is unjust and we are going to go through the courts and there think about that Somebody spending now those yeah. precious days in a courtroom, which is what you were, you know, when you think about it, you were trying to avoid all of this stuff, and yeah. now you're, you know, but but clearly, well, is, yeah. <clears throat> clearly, Audrey's the type of person that, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about Audrey for an awfully long time now. Yeah, and that's sure a good are. thing. And, yeah, yeah, it is a good thing. You know what? There's lots of good to it, and the one positive thing I just want to say at the end, you know, as we've said before, made is an incredible. Um, you know, resource to, for people to be able to access. It just needs to be improved. The flaw needs to be fixed. Um, it's amazing that we have this in Canada. I think that we are very lucky, but it's not right, and it needs to be fixed, and it needs to be fixed right now. And there is an ability to make all of that happen. We just need our lawmakers to, you know, have confidence in the fact that they've thought out this law, they've, they've created the r- rigorous screening process. So let's just do this. Hmm. Just make this happen. And so we're going to keep the, you know, the um, the gas to it. And uh, we hope that Canadians, you know, we, we, we've got about, I think, 2,500 um, petitions, you know. If Where should people go if they want to find out more about this? So dyingwithdignity.ca. Mm-hmm. Right on their homepage there is 
um, support. I think it says raise your voice for Audrey's amendment. Just click on it. It literally takes 30 seconds. You fill in your name, postal code, and there's a letter there to Justice Lametti. Feel free if somebody wants to create, add their own comments or personalize mm. it. Um, that would be fantastic. But, you know, we, we need to raise our voices and we need to, to help um, all these other families that are out there. And we, we estimate there's, um, you know, it's in the hundreds of people right now who are sitting in a precarious situation. And that will continue. Um, I mean, that's not going to change either as people no, keep it's going not through it. Change. Kimberly King has been with us, friend of Audrey Parker, who died with medical assistance, however, was told when she had to do that, and that was before she wanted, uh, because the way the law stands now, you have to give consent at the very last minute. Kimberly, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. Great. Great to chat with you. Thanks. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.